broadcasting live on the Mix Radio Network. You're listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. Casey, the floor is yours. All right, how you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of the Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I started to showcase indie entertainers and creative types from all walks. I like to say, if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, then I want to hear from you. Uh, easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm on there all the time, at Cutting Room MRB, or you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cutting Room MRB, uh, or shoot me an email with your feedback, good, bad, or ugly. If you have uh, something that you want me to promote on the show, if you have music that you want me to play, this is something that I'm always on the lookout for. Uh, indie musicians I love hearing from because I always play a song from an independent band uh, halfway through the uh, the show, and I've got a really good one lined up for you today, by the way. Emma Scott sent me something that's really cool uh, uh, alternative ska band out of uh, London that is really really something else uh, cuttingroomfloor.mrb at gmail.com uh, quick thank you as we do at the top of the show to the wolf who acts as my announcer you can listen to him every Sunday night right here on the Mix Radio Network uh, with his wife uh, Susan on the Live from the Morgue podcast uh, also to Michael Cardello who wrote my opener for me and to Ethan Detmeyer and the gang down at Brigade Radio 1 that's uh, Brigade Radio 1 and number 1 all spelled out dot org uh, Ethan Detmeyer uh, and the gang at Combat Radio and Brigade Radio have syndicated me out in LA so I send my shows down there and I get some additional play in Los Angeles. Uh, also, a thank you where credit is due to Stuart Michelson, uh, who hails from the Join the Nation uh, uh, movement, I should say. Uh, Stuart's got a multiple uh, branding approach here in terms of being a life coach and you know, has a blog going. And I recently coached him in terms of setting up his own podcast, and he's been doing that, doing some great interviews and a lot of great work. And Stuart is a very, very good friend of mine. So, uh, Stuart, congrats on all the great work that you're doing, and uh, you know, keep it coming. And I'm happy to uh, lend my name to it and help you get the word out there. In the spirit of that, Stuart actually set up the interview today with uh, with a really compelling guest, uh, somebody that I actually, we, we kind of, Amy and I kind of teased each other a little bit because we've been following each other for a while uh, without realizing that we had the mutual connections through Stuart. But Amy Dresner's here for the first half. Uh, she hails from Beverly Hills, California. Uh, she's an accomplished uh, stand-up comedian and uh, an author of a book called My Fair Junkie, which is a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. Um, I've been reading snippets of the book and reviews, and it's been nothing but universally positive. Uh, really, really compelling sounding piece of work. Uh, she's also made appearances uh, in her process of doing uh, her stand-up comedy at the likes of uh, the Improv and the Comedy Store and the Laugh Factory. Uh, all kinds of other great things. We love having comics on the show as well. So without further ado, the cutting room full, I proudly welcome. So it's always great to have people on here for the first time. Uh, Amy Dresner's here. Amy, how are you? Hi, good. How are you? Thanks for having me. So my first question for everybody new is just sort of a bit of an icebreaker here. Uh, did, did I get all of your bio information right? or is that? Close yeah, I mean, I, I haven't done stand-up in like seven years. I mean, once I got arrested, <laughs> I kind of put a damper on that. I was sort of like going through a divorce and a criminal trial. And then I was like, oh, maybe I, you know, it wasn't really working on my tight 10 for the comedy store. So it was like I put that aside and then I got really into writing. I started I've been uh, a writer for the addiction recovery magazine, the since 2012. And that sort of gave me the platform to write my book. 
which has now come out and has been optioned for TV development and then is leading to speaking gigs. And so it's sort of all kind of bloomed from the fix. Okay, well, uh, you know, let's start with that then. I'll, I'll circle back to the book in a bit. But uh, you mentioned that that was really sort of the launch pad, if you will, for, for this leg of your career. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the fix and what you were doing with them. I understand that you're uh, an associate editor or something like that, right? Yeah, I'm a contributing editor. I mean, I'm just like the, like one of their sort of most obnoxious writers. So I've sort of like become a golden girl on the site. But it's like, and I've been there for, you know, one of the long, like a, a writer there for the, one of the longest periods. But, um, and my stuff tends to be very irreverent and uh, drives traffic because I dare to say the talk about the stuff that no one dares talk about, you know? Um, so I am a recovering uh, addict and alcoholic and sex addict. And um, so I was just sort of chronicling all of my adventures as well as doing interviews and, you know, reporting on stuff and, you know, uh, but mostly the stuff that people liked from me was my confessional stuff, which was me struggling with getting sober. And then in 2011, everything blew up for me. I was uh, high on Oxycontin and uh, I pulled a knife on my now ex-husband. I went to jail for felony domestic violence and that was not so great. Uh, not exactly what my parents had in mind for me. And uh, everything fell apart. I lost everything and was left penniless in a psych ward and uh, sentenced to 240 hours of community labor. So it was like a skinny white Jew on the chain gang and a year of domestic violence class. And uh, instead of being ashamed about it, I started posting about it on Facebook. Like every day that I was on the chain gang, I'd take a picture of something I found or something I'd learned or, you know, I kind of just owned it and people were dying laughing and they were just, when I finished finally, they were like, oh my God, get arrested again. That was the best. And that got me thinking, maybe there's a book here. And actually my old editor at The Fix is no longer there, just said, that's the framework for your book is the chain gang, is your community labor and then flashbacks to, you know, the 20 years of, you know, rehabs and psych wards and suicide attempts and, you know, all that other kind of fun stuff. So uh, I wrote a book and it got picked up and it got published and people love it. People, I think it's one of the few addiction memoirs that's actually sort of funny and it's like incredibly honest. It's like gruesomely, gruesomely honest. I really threw over being likable or uh, being PC for being truthful. And I think that that's what we need right now. And so people just really are just like, fuck, it's so real. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess, you know, in the midst of all the craziness, right, I, I, I guess, you know, where do you where do you pick up the thread and say, OK, fine, this is a good place to start. I, I, you know, I, I'm just trying to imagine. What do you mean? You mean for the book? For, you know, or at least to start writing and say, look, OK, I've decided that I'm going to write. You know, how did you decide on the first couple of topics that you decided to go public with? Um, okay. Well, I've always, my father's a writer. I've always sort of written, I wrote for call, uh, magazines in college and that kind of stuff. I have, you know, ha you know, a dozen half finished novels on, on my computer, you know, for the last, you know, 20 years. So writing was not something new, but I was tapped by the then editor, uh, Anna David to write a piece about sex and dating and sobriety. She just said, hey, you know, I don't know if it's because I was funny, she thought I'd be funny, or because I was had been slutty, or whatever, whatever she thought. She just said, hey, I'd like you to write this piece. And I wrote the piece, and it was so wildly popular that I was in. And I just started writing for them. 
and I just started chronicling stuff that was going on. And um, it was so, you know, filterless that people just loved it. You know, it wasn't preachy. It wasn't, you know, and I was just, you know, I just kept falling down. I mean, I had so many horror stories, but I had a lot of insight into it also. And I'm very sort of critical thinker, so I was sort of like analyzing the program and addiction and, you know, my life and, you know, my upbringing and all of that kind of stuff. And so I just was writing for them and I was doing stand-up, um, a lot of recovery stand-up and also normal stand-up. And then, you know, it all fell apart. Um, but I kept writing through, you know, through, through the uh, – <laughs> Yeah, through the psych wards and through the rehabs, I kept writing, and um, yeah, and then it's just like become. Yeah, I just wrote the book. I mean, it was like it was it was frightening to put the book out uh, because you know it's nothing to be being a drug addict is still kind of cool. Being a sex, female sex addict, not cool at all. You're just kind of considered a whore. <laughs> um, and there's nothing cool about being a female perpetrator of domestic violence. And a lot of people didn't have uh, any kind of empathy for me because I came from sort of an upper middle class background and, you know, you know, was like a rich kid. And it's like I want to sort of debunk that myth that uh, that, that somehow protects you from addiction because it doesn't. It actually cripples you more. So well, well, I, mean, um, I, I would argue that I mean to to address the issue of a female perpetrator of domestic violence. I, I I mean there's nothing really cool about being a perpetrator. Period. Whether you're a, a man or yes, a woman. Yes. Yes. But it's pretty rare to be the the. Yeah, you're right. No, of course. But I mean to be the a female is very. It's it's more rare and it's like. It's, you know, it's, it was humiliating, but I just decided to really just own it because when there, you know, when that kind of stuff happens to you, what can you do? You know, I know, I knew from editorial that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. I know people like to read crazy stuff and, but I mostly write, wrote the book because I wanted to help people. I wanted people to feel less alone. I wanted people to feel less broken. I wanted people to understand how I got to that period, like how that hot moment ruined my life. How um, and I wanted to un I wanted people to understand addiction from the inside out, whether you were an addict or whether you were the family member of an addict. And I, I guess that's what I accomplished because I've gotten messages from like parole officers that are like, oh, my God, thank you. I learned more about addiction than I did doing, you know, narcotics parole cases for 20 years in Philadelphia. Like, thank you. And from and from family members of addicts, because I really take you on the inside and show you how we feel and how we think and you know, all of it. Okay. So, so what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about addicts, that, you know, looking in from the outside that, uh, that you sort of voice to help people relate to, to the kinds of things that, that, uh, people who are addicts to go through? Um, I think the biggest thing is that it's a choice. I think, you know, it's a choice of course to pick up for the first time, but you know, uh, many, many people pick up and don't become addicts. Right. That's the difference. Right. There are plenty of people who do coke at a party and don't become addicts. They're like, ugh, this is this horrible. This, this made me feel nervous and weird. You know, there's something for addicts, whether it's, you know, biochemical, you know, genetic, uh, you know, a trauma base, you know, whatever it is, combination of all these things that creates that sort of void that opens up where all of a sudden you're like click, you know, and you're off. And then you need this thing to feel normal. So the more I real, the more I'm reading about uh, brain 
chemistry, the more I believe that it's actually a brain disease, like fully a brain disease. And the ne- my next fix, fix piece is going to talk about low dopamine tone and why addicts feel weird before they pick up and they feel off and not normal and then they find a drug that makes them feel normal and who doesn't want to feel normal that's all i ever wanted to i want to just want to feel normal so so i suffered from a lot of depression um and i think that you know i think people think oh if i got to that place i would never do that and i guess that's the whole thing i mean i so many things happened to me and i did so many things that i thought someone like me would never do and um, it, it, I just, it, it created, you know, having those experiences, not just getting arrested, but psych wards and suicide attempts and rehabs. I mean, I was a really goody two-shoes when I grew up. I was really against drugs. I didn't get dr- into drugs and drinking till much later, till like my 20s, which is pretty late start. And uh, I, I just feel like, you know, it created a lot of compassion for people where I thought, oh my God, that person's so different from me. I could never. And it's like, no, you what you you know what? You could. Under the right circumstances, you absolutely could. Yeah, I mean it's a matter of getting pushed to to your breaking point at that point. Yeah. I mean, I was high and it was a bad marriage and I I just kind of snapped. And I paid the price for it. Um, but that is something I never ever thought I was capable of. And so uh, and that was the other thing that I learned, you know, sort of on the chain gang, you know, as being someone, you know, like this, you know, skinny Beverly Hills Jew, you know, showing up. And I was like, well, oh, my God, these are like criminals and like I have to sweep the streets and blah, blah, blah. and it was like I had more time than anyone else for the, from the courts. And I was one of the very few people there for a violent offense. And it was so humbling. I was like, whoa, I'm like you aren't who you think you are. Like you need it, you know what I mean? Like all that entitlement. I think the entitlement of growing up in Beverly Hills really screwed me up for a really long time. I think it crippled me and made me feel like everyone should do everything for me. And because everyone was doing everything for me, throwing money at it, fixing it, you know, and I didn't have to really have a job that I eventually didn't think that I could do anything. It was sort of a learned inability. And then, and then the, 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 the floor dropped out. And everyone was done, and uh, and then all, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm in my 40s trying to rebuild my life from scratch, not having any life skills and not knowing and with no money, you know, medical disability and babysitting for ten dollars an hour, even though I'm a college graduate and just like, you know, freelance writing and just I mean it was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, and it's exactly what I needed for the transformation to occur, um, and it gives people a lot of hope. I mean, you know, what I really learned, and it's the, sort of the, 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 the message of my book, is like that the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you. That's a Will Rogers quote. It's at the top of my book. And it's like I had an epiphany when I was like sweeping the streets, you know, and I was like, wait a second. You know, I can feel sorry for myself and be like, poor me, I'm in sober living for, you know, and I'm 40 something and on medical disability and look at where I came from. And I used to be, you know, this rich guy's wife and I grew up and da, 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 And then I just thought, this is your, this is the consequences of all your behaviors, your choices, your responsibilities. Like whether the addiction was my choice, it's my responsibility to fix it. 
No, and I mean, you, you, you touch on something. You mentioned Will Rogers' quote, and I, I remember that one myself, but I also remembered something by one of my favorite authors, uh, Neil Gaiman, and he was giving a uh, an honorary speech at a university uh, graduating class, and he said, make good art. I don't know if you've ever seen that speech. Uh-uh, uh-uh. He said, uh-uh. you know, your house burns down, make good art. Your wife burns <laughs> make good art, you know? Well, that's like that's like the art. Philip Roth quote. You know, nothing bad can happen to a writer. It's all material. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's sort of what I took this as. I just, but I also was like, this could be the best thing that ever happened to me. And how? It could humble me. It could give me a work ethic. It could be an interesting story. I could find the humor. It was actually, you know, life changing in a way I never experienced. I mean, I never had had, had anticipated. And. um so yeah, the book has really helped a lot of people and that's amazing to take, you know, 20 years of, you know, trauma and self-destruction and sadness and pain and turn it into a tool that, that, that gives people hope and inspiration is, you know, is a dream come true. And then the fact that it's been optioned for TV development is just like another dream on top of that. And, you know, so, you know, this has sort of become my life's work now is talking about addiction and recovery. Okay, so let, let's talk about the development uh, as much as you can talk about it. I mean, I don't want you to get in trouble by... I'm really not allowed to talk anything about it. Okay, I just It enough. has been optioned for t- TV development series. That's all I'm allowed to say at this point. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's it. But it's very exciting. No, and, and I imagine it would be. that, that you know, And that would be, uh, you know, kind of my next question was whether or not you'd actually considered this and you already have, and we've gone there. So we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> Speaking engagements. What kind of speaking engagements do you do? Do Um, I'm just getting started on that. And again, that's something, you know, I mean, I've always, you know, with a background in in stand up, being funny is easy. Um, um, Like, I, you know, I mean, I'm out. I'm I'm in a 12 step program. So I speak at a lot of meetings. And I think anonymity is, you know, stupid and keeps, you know, I, I have a quote, I have something I say, which is, you know, we can't break the stigma of addiction until we break the stigma of recovery because I know for myself I thought AA was some weird creepy Christian cult and I stayed away from it for a very very long time and so um it's not the 30s anymore and you know we have celebrity rehab and we have you know intervention and I think you know we're all sort of out there's a zillion rehabs and there's commercials for rehabs like let's you know people know when you're in recovery you're most likely in a 12-step program I don't understand you know, to me, I, I, getting clean was the hardest thing I ever did, and I'm really proud of it. So, um, uh, so yeah, I'm speaking as she recovers, which is a 600 women event uh, at the Beverly Hilton next week with a lot of big shots like Janet Mock and um, Cheryl Strait and Mackenzie Phillips and Sherry Gabba and all this kind of stuff. And Betty Ford's daughter is going to be taking an award, and I'm totally terrified. <laughs> um, and then I got asked to speak at uh, the Mindful Recovery and Wellness Symposium in North Carolina in uh, October. So I'm going to do that. And I, I landed myself a speaking agent. And then uh, I might actually go to Canada and do some speaking if I can get that felony. I was arrested on a felony. So it's a drop down on misdemeanor. I got to make sure that's all cleared up so you guys will let me in. And uh, I guess what do you find is the hardest thing for you to write about? I mean, I I know that you're brutally honest in in terms of the ground that you allow yourself to cover, but is there anything that really touches a nerve with you that, that, you know, that you know that you have to go to that space, but it's still difficult? In the book? 
Or in general. Uh, I'll, uh, you know, you can answer that any way that you like, for that matter. Um, in terms of the book, the hardest thing to write about was the sex, the sexual addiction. So when I got clean again, and I've been clean many times and had years of sobriety and then sort of relapsed, which I, you know, is common for people. Uh, I think relapse is a part of many diseases, cancer included. Uh, you know, I, I'm always in awe of those people who sort of just like went, you know, went to rehab and they're like, I've been clean ever since. I'm like, really? Um, I, during the criminal trial and divorce, being broke, I, I had to stay clean, but I also was in so much pain and so confused and so depressed. Uh, I just, I had to get out of myself and I developed in this sobriety early on, not anymore, thank God, um, basically a sex addiction. And, um, that was really the hardest thing to write about. It was, it was mortifying and, um, there were scenes that I just was like, I don't want to write this. You do not want to put this down on paper. And I just know from all the great writers that the stuff that you are just like, I don't want to write this. I don't want to share this. That's the stuff you have to put down on the page. That's the stuff that's going to help people. And so I just decided to let it all hang out. And I'm not sorry I did. You know, it's, it's, it's actually, it's been weirdly freeing. Well, now, and uh, you touched on something, you know, kind of interesting that, that, uh, you know, relapsing and, and that kind of thing that, that uh, I mean, it's part of the process, right? And, uh, I think so for most people. Uh, well, yeah, and I would have to imagine that, that it's got to be frustrating for your support system to say, okay, fine, well, you've gone there, you've gotten the treatment. The, oh, yeah, my parents. Non- oh. You know, to, to walk away and that's the end of it, right? And, of course, it, it was, if it would only be that simple, that's the problem. That's the dream the rehab sells you yeah. and your parents, uh, you know, but that. it's not that simple. And I mean, I really uh, explore that in the book with my parents and they're, you know, alternating between they never gave up on me and they kept putting me, throwing me into treatment. But yeah, they got very, very frustrated. They were just, you know, they and I got into some really heavy stuff. I V drug use and stuff like that. And, you know, I have epilepsy from crystal meth now and. You know, they, you know, I mean, there's a line in the book and my dad just said, God, this is getting old. And I said, what? And he said, you at the bottom of the well. Ow. Yeah. Ow. <laughs> you know, well, after six rehabs, your parents are kind of over it. They're just like, ugh, you know, and they always thought I'd get through, but they were just starting to just really get burnt with the whole thing. And they just thought I was too, you know, there's this thing that you're too smart. You know what I mean? Like, you're too smart to do that. Like, that seems so stupid. It's like, I, I wish it was a, an, an issue of, uh, of intelligence. It's, I can't, you know, the, the book is all in first person. It's a very, very intense shotgun ride where I sort of strap you in next to me and take you through my life. There's flashbacks also, but it's all in first person. And so you really get the experience where you're with me. And, um, uh, I really explain the thinking and the biology and how we feel and, you know, what goes through our head and how that incredibly horrible experience of going, I don't want to do this and sort of having this out-of-body experience where you watch yourself do it again. You're like, what? Why am I doing I just said I didn't, you know what I mean? Yesterday I said I would never do this again and here I am doing it again. Like, how is this possible? And then when you look into the brain chemistry and you know that addiction hijacks, you know, the prefrontal cortex and the decision making and the, and the brake system, it all starts to make sense. 
Uh, I'm looking at a quote on your website here from one of the uh, greatest modern uh, female comics in the business, Margaret Cho. <laughs> Soundbite here. Dreadnought's book is a sickening masterpiece. Hilarious and raw. She cuts to bony truth. I love her. Uh, I got to read a copy of this thing, Amy. Uh, what, 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 <laughs> this, this sounds fantastic. Um, my last question for you: Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing and and uh, you know get a hold of a copy of the book or keep track of it? Uh, book is at Barnes and Noble, Indie Bound. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, there's an audio book that I narrated. There's Kindle. There the paperback's coming out September 18th. Uh, the hardcover's been out since last September. Uh, you can go to my website, amydresner.com, where I post all my events, articles, radio, you know, interviews, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Amy Dresner. I'm on Instagram, Amy Dresner. I'm on Facebook, Amy Dresner. My, uh, I've got an official page, Amy Dresner Official. Um, yeah. I think that covers it. Well, what can I tell you? It was a big thrill to be able to talk to you, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Of course, Casey. Thank you for having me. And I'd be happy to have you back anytime you like. I would love it. I would love it. Once uh, the TV thing moves forward, maybe we can revisit and I can talk more freely. Absolutely. So, uh, anyway, I have to let you go, but thanks again for your time today, and we'll definitely be in touch, all right? Sounds great, Casey. Thanks. Have a good day. All right, you too. Okay, bye. And that was Amy Dresner, and we're going to see if we can get uh, Johnny Coffeeun on the line here, and we'll see if we can do that right now. Uh... Okay, uh, Johnny, you there? Hello. Hey, it's Casey Ryan here. How are you? Hello, Johnny. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Sorry about that. I was trying to get my headphones to get connected. No, not, not a problem. Can you hear me okay? Uh, I can hear you now. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're just going to take a quick break as we do in the middle of the show here. I'm just going to ask you to mute yourself up. Uh, I'm going to bring in Jason Hadley to do the Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up, and uh, we're going to play uh, Imperial Leisure. It's a song called Rolling with four extra artists if you're looking for it. But Imperial Leisure is the name of the group. Uh, and we'll be back with you in uh, about five minutes from now. So, uh, Johnny, don't go anywhere, and we'll be right back. All right? All right. Thank, thank you. It's the Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up with your host, Jason Hadley. Longtime fitness guru Richard Simmons is making a comeback, launching a new line of merchandise along with a new calendar. However, a calendar seems like an odd choice being 70 years old, a recluse, and in and out of hospitals. You'd think the last thing Richard Simmons wants is his days numbered. Banned from Spotify, Facebook, iTunes, and more, InfoWars host Alex Jones has been suspended from yet another social media platform. Diehard conspiracy fans will soon only be able to catch his radio show through their dental fillings when tilting their tinfoil hats towards the southern horizon. Tyler Perry offered former Cosby Show actor Jeffrey Owens a part in an upcoming TV show after Fox News shamed him for working as a grocery store cashier between acting gigs. In a related story, Jeffrey's TV father-in-law, Bill, will soon be joining the cast of MSNBC Lockup. And that's the Hollywood Rock and Wrap-Up. Follow us on Twitter at Rock and Wrap-Up. Yeah. 
in the ocean I go cause I can't stand the commotion Hanging out of mermaids and molded dick Slowly turning into a lunatic Not young but I'm not old Been about a bit but the stars still go Still dropping bangers to make you go Take a good look at the earth Splashing on my body, I feel a vibe you can't buy with money That whistle is the sound of a kettle Time for tea, better grab some nettles Some mint or some avocado leaf So I can get my hurry relief Right now I am giving And I'm giving everything that I got given To this moment that I pass at the last given Let you see in a jungle on a tree swinging I'm a loser that just can't stop winning On stage I'm there for the loving You can see it in my face when I'm singing This man has got to keep rolling We keep rolling Scott sent that to me today. Uh, I love playing all kinds of music on the cutting room floor from indie musicians. If you've got something you want to, uh, you know, me to play for you, send it to me, cuttingroomfloor.mrb at gmail.com. I'm proud to do it, but Uncle Casey likes his trumpets. I used to be a trumpet player myself, so if you want me to play it more than once, make sure there's horns in it, because I, I love that kind of stuff. High octane, get you going. Uh, again, you can find these guys on SoundCloud. Imperial Leisure is the name of the group. Uh, Roland is the name of the track. And again, thank you to Emma Scott for introducing me to these guys. Well done indeed. Uh, so in the second half, I want to give a uh, shout out to Tracy McCormick, uh, who is a frequent collaborator of the show and a contributor. She set me up on dozens of interviews. Uh, Tracy works with uh, her own brand, Lightfinder PR, is in public relations, so you can find her at Lightfinder PR, Lightfinder PR, I want to make sure I get that in, uh, .com. One of the nicest people I've met in the process of doing uh, this show, really, really great person, uh, honest as the day is long, and, and works extremely hard for her clients. 
Uh, and the latest in that series is uh, the interview that I'm going to be doing right now with Johnny Coffeine. Uh, Johnny, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name properly, am I? Uh, yes, uh, Johnny Coffeine is correct. Okay, all right. So Johnny Coffeine is here. Uh, he's going to be talking about uh, a feature film that he's working on called The False Mirror. Uh, was one of the, he uh, actually is a, uh, won the Student Academy Award uh, award uh, for filmmaking. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. Uh, he was also uh, uh, the third person that's actually been on this show who's won an Academy Award of some sort. I've had Roger uh, Christian on here and, and Robert Smith, uh, so I'm you guys know me, I'm a huge Oscars nerd, so I love hearing stories about this. Uh, also attended David Lynch's master class on full scholarship. Uh, holy hell. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of short work film, uh, short film work that he's done, and uh, obviously, of course, The False Mirror. Uh, so without further ado, the cutting room floor proudly welcomes for the first time Johnny Coffee. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So uh, cool. first question I always have for new people uh, when they're on here for the first time, uh, did I get all of your bio information right, or is there like anything that you'd like to add there? I was completely wrong. Completely wrong? I blew it. hundred percent, hundred percent. It wasn't an Oscar. I wouldn't Emmy. <laughs> I'm just checking in. Okay. Uh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, yeah, everything is perfect, man. Thanks for that. Uh, um, so I understand that you were part of the the first group that was in that category. I mean, I I'm I'm a huge Oscars nerd, and and I I didn't even know that this existed. I, you know, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, well, um, no, actually, this uh, the Student Academy has been around for I don't know how long 30, 30 40 years, something like that. Um, you know, Spike uh, Lee was one of the winners. Um, uh, John Lasseter, who did Toy Story, um, a lot of different people throughout the years. Even Bob Saget won one. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, for a documentary he made. But um, so, yeah, it's been a, a, the Academy's had the Student Academy Awards, and I wasn't the first to be a part of that, but I was the first to be chosen um, with, with three other winners of the, my year uh, to be at the actual uh, Academy Awards uh, 2017 to be handing out Oscars uh, to people like Meryl Streep and Leonardo DiCaprio and all that kind of stuff. And that was the year that the, uh, the wrong Best Picture was announced. <laughs> so, so you were part of the group that, that uh, basically effectively walked the statues out to the, whoever was handing them out, right? That's correct, yeah. We would walk them out, and then we would just be kind of escorts. You know, if someone was going to walk the wrong direction, we had to, you know, to, herd them the, the other direction and stuff, stuff like that. So it was basically a job, but, you know, we were on the air, and we saw, you know, all the crazy stuff go down at the end, and it was really exciting. So I guess what was the reaction? Uh, I mean, Moonlight was the name of the uh, the movie that ultimately won, but they they announced La La Land, from what I remember, right? Right. Oh yeah, that's correct. And, and yes, um, Moonlight was the film that I wanted to win, so I was excited but also confused when it happened. But yeah, what happened was they called the wrong uh, best picture, and then you know everyone started freaking out naturally backstage, and it felt like the end of the world. Um, but um, but yeah, it was just um, I was backstage, but. Two of my friends, the other winners, were on stage, and they're in all the pictures. So they're the ones that are going to go down in history as being, you know, in the <laughs> pictures for that. So. Yeah, Warren Beatty, right? That, that that read the wrong name, I think. Right? Yeah, Warren Beatty. I, I think it was uh, Faye Dunaway. Uh, they, she read 
uh, she, what, what did she do? Oh yeah, he was afraid to say it because he, he knew it was wrong. And then she just grabbed it and said it. <laughs> oh, she did. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 Bonnie and Clyde up there, I remember. But, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, they yeah. screwed it up and they, they let him come back the next year and they got it right. They gave it the shape of water. So, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the history of, of what you've done so far. I understand that you really cut your teeth in short films, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all, that's all kind of all I've done uh, for 10 years. Um, I've done short films with crews no larger than four people. Um, so it's been really just hyper collaborations with, you know, one other artist or, you know, two, a couple other friends or by myself even. Um, and it's just, you know, I've just developed all my skills as an editor, a writer, director, animator, um, not much of an animator, excuse me, um, producer, um, you know, all that stuff. And so now that I'm doing this actual production, I have, you know, 30, 40 crew members and 10 actors or whatever. Um, I feel like I have all, all the bases kind of covered, you know, like the, the writing informs the editing and acting and all that stuff. So it, it's been a really good um, process to kind of hold out until now to to jump onto larger stuff. So, so I, I got to ask this, an outsider looking in, I, I, I'm fascinated by the whole process. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, you hear the term masterclass thrown around a lot when you're a podcaster like I am. Uh, I guess what kinds of things do you learn in a master class? I, you know, apart from obviously you got to to work with David Lynch, but I, I guess what kinds of things that you know do you pick up in a class like that? Well, uh, you know, uh, this master class in particular was very interesting because out of nowhere I, I was in a spot in my life where I I was kind of stuck. I mean, it's it's a not. Uh, just in a lot of ways and and I saw there was a, a Facebook ad for a David Lynch film school and I you know it was it just felt like a like a fantasy like a fake you know something fake and so they, they let you send in a uh, a film and if you uh, win then you get a full scholarship to the David Lynch school well I sent in a, a documentary I made about an artist named John Frame and uh, I, I I ended up getting a third place I think David Lynch chose me as a third place winner and I just accepted, oh, I'm not going to go to the school. And then what happened was I told them that I can't afford it, all that stuff. And they just decided, you know what, we, we still want you to come, so we'll give you a full scholarship anyway. <laughs> so I was able to still go and, you know, have free housing and free tuition and all that. Um, and the thing I took out of it the most is was really just the uh, friends I made. I mean, I, I, I met my best friend there, uh, Rodolfo Rincones, and... Um, you know, he and I have just been collaborating ever since. I mean, we, you know, we just have made so many little films together. And, um, we co-write stuff and, you know, so it's, it's, it's really that kind of thing. I mean, you, you learn the standard information. Um, we got to Skype with David Lynch and meet David Lynch and Jim Carrey and all these other really cool people. But um, it, for me, um, and David Lynch said this as well, he said the most valuable thing will be the people that you are here with right now. And he was right about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's as much a networking opportunity as it is a learning experience, right? That, that you guys are the next generation of filmmakers that are going to be out there telling the stories, right? For sure, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, I learned this. I mean, I, I, it, I didn't choose to, you know, make all of these um, experimental films, really. I just never had the money or friends, really, to, to collaborate on a larger scale. But, um, but, you know, film is a collaborative art form, and, and uh, I don't ever think I should just be doing these things alone. So um, when you start incorporating, you know, incredible actors, like these actors I just worked with, I mean, they really do the work for you and beyond. I mean, really, if you just cast good people, you know, they'll do good work. And same with a production designer or, uh, you know, um, 
cinematographer or whatever. So you have all these people at the top of their game and they're all bouncing off each other. And, you know, there's a kind of a, an energy, like you're all on a Wi-Fi connection together, you know? And, and so that's the, you know, what I've learned on this last project was just, um, uh, you know, just embrace that and, 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 you know, listen and just select the best ideas from everyone. That's all you have to do as a director, really. So, so let's talk about the false mirror then. I, I understand that this is your, your feature debut, right? Well, well, I mean, so this is the story of the false mirror is it was the very first film idea I ever received in my, you know, in my head. And I was a musician um, and I, you know, I toured somewhat with my band and all that stuff. And that's all I wanted to do. Okay. And then I, I got this idea and I just thought, wow, you know, I really, I just want to write this. I don't know anything about writing or anything, but I want to write this film. And so I just started getting obsessed with watching films, uh, art films, Ingmar Bergman, Stanley Kubrick, uh, um, Tarkovsky, all that kind of stuff, David Lynch, of course, so on and so on. And I just got to the point where I just decided, you know what, I got to stop doing this. I have to actually go, you know, make films. I want to make this film. So I got to make other films until I'm ready. And so I spent literally 10 years um, doing other films. And I, I would check in on this every couple of years and feel like, oh, I'm not ready. I don't have enough life content, you know, to, to put into this. I need more research, all that kind of stuff. And so I finally decided, um, not to get too political, but after the uh, 2016 U.S. elections, uh, you know, I got very existential. <laughs> I was thinking, I really should make the film that I want to make. I should do that now, just in case, you know, uh, <laughs> pardon my French, uh, you know, shit hits the fan. And um, so I just started uh, developing it. Um, and what I have done is I've decided that though I've written the feature um, several times in different incarnations, that I would do a short film version of the first okay. and right. hopefully, you know, get into, you know, what have you, Sundance or South by Southwest or even just a local festival, anything. I just want to make it so that I can get experience um, as a director with a big crew and professional actors. And then I could do whatever I want with it. I can make it a web series pilot or I could... Uh, edit it differently to be a TV pilot pitch, or I can make it the first act of the feature and shoot the rest of the footage, or I could just, you know, get new actors. <laughs> I'm just joking. I might, I, I like to pick up some of these actors, but, um, and just go ahead and get more money and, and do the, the feature, um, you know, exactly how I've always wanted it in my head without any compromises if possible. So it's not exactly a feature yet, but that's the train I'm heading toward, um, you know, hopefully next year. Okay, so give us the picture on what's the movie about. <laughs> well, I mean, I still had to hold on to my, you know, weird art roots with it because it, it doesn't, I mean, it's the worst pitch to start with this, but it, it, it's a film that it, it's kind of an experience. I mean, basically, the, the first half of it is like a psychedelic uh, psychiatrist, and he, he prescribes these microdoses of, of psychedelic drugs like LSD and um MDMA or whatever it is, he, he for different purposes for these people, um, and he just that's kind of his religion. Drugs are his religion. He just believes there's no God, and he thinks that pleasure and all this stuff is what he needs to, uh, you know, spread to the world. That everyone needs to just enjoy their life and help other people enjoy their life. And he's kind of just stuck in that. He's happy with that. Um, but the then it, some tragedy happens in the middle of it, um, and then we shift over to this other side of the story which is this uh, married couple, they're, they're uh, religious, and we realize that, that the, the, the husband in that relationship is, a, is the same actor as the, as the guy in the first one. So basically, 
you're looking at two different lifestyles. One's very all about hedonism and the other one's about ethical, you know, marriage and love and stuff. And, and it's just kind of a comparison of these two worlds. And um, after the fact, after I got this idea, I found um, a book by Soren Kierkegaard called Either Or. And it's about the same thing. The first half is about hedonism. Um, and the second half is about an ethical um, uh, judge uh, character. And I just realized, wow, I, I kind of kind of accidentally stole this so now I'm you know I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna mention that it's based on that <laughs> kind of but well yeah so yeah yeah so it's you know that's just a seed it's just a short and it's gonna have more of an arc in the future where you're gonna explore this identity thing where this character looks like someone else um, and then there's the wife who's left over uh, with you know the sorrow of all that and there's gonna be a they're gonna go on two different journeys um, and some of them will overlap and all that kind of stuff, but you know that's the basic idea. So, uh, and Kierkegaard, I, I, you know that that's the first time I think I've heard that name dropped on this show. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that that that's that to me would be almost equating it to going the the hard way in in terms of source material. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I've read enough about his work to uh, to know that you know that that's really really tough. I, I would imagine. Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I feel like Nietzsche is more hardcore, you know, he's, he's, or however you say his name, um, he's more of a nihilist, and um, Kierkegaard had a uh, kind of a, kind of a, he's kind of a Christian existentialist, so I, he has a, I'm not Christian per se, but I do have a, you know, a larger perspective than, you know, there's no God, I do feel that there's something else going on, but I kind of relate to his writing, because he's, um, he includes spirituality into it, but he's very realistic about you know the now and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's not it's not exactly tough. I mean, he, the first half he's the guy riffing about Mozart and all these you know Don Juan and all these pleasurable things, and and then the second half is interesting. And there's really beautiful quotes in there, and I I, I think it's quite enjoyable. It's really long, but I like it. <laughs> uh, so where's the film at right now? Are you still in the planning stages of it? Uh, I, I guess. Yeah. Have you, have you completed the short? Where are you? Yeah, yeah the, the short. So the short was shot, uh, what is it, about about a, almost a month ago. And we um, just wrapped a, a cut on it. And we'll be uh, doing sound and music, color, all that stuff now. And we're, we're going to send it to Sundance. Uh, um, you know, both of the actors in the film have had successes uh, at Sundance. So, you know, we, we hope that there's some kind of luck there. But... Um, if, if, if not, we'll just, uh, keep working on it. You know, it's kind of a rush to get it done in, in uh, the next week or two, but, um, it, it's fine. I mean, if it's not ready, then we'll just, we'll make the next version even better and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, let's talk about the team that you've assembled. You mentioned that you have a couple of, uh, actors and, you know, who's working with you on it. Oh, sure. So, um, the lead actor is, uh, Lou Taylor Pucci. I mean, he's an actor that, um, around the time I started to want to become a filmmaker, I, I saw a film of his called Thumbsucker and I, I really loved it. I mean, it's just a really beautiful film and it's comedic and it's coming of age. And, um, and I just thought, wow, what a, what a masterful acting, you know, performance. And he won best actor at Sundance that year and also Berlin. And so I, you know, I just have followed his career since then. I you know, saw him in a Richard Linklater film and um, evil dead remake and all these movies over the years. And, you know, he was on Girls, and I would just see him over the years and keep thinking, well, that's the guy I really like. I like that guy. And eventually, when I wanted to make this film, I 
reached out to him on Facebook, uh, <laughs> and he responded, and we just kind of um, creatively really hit it off, and um, you know, it, it, the rest is kind of history. So that's really exciting. And uh, secondly, uh, Sarah Hagen, she's from uh, Freaks and Geeks. She played the character Millie on there, and um, she's been in a lot of other great films too. And um, her last short film is called Dog Walker, um, and it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And I just, same thing, I reached out to her on her, on her website. Um, she's an artist, and she responded as well and was really excited. And, uh, yeah, then I found out she was pregnant. <laughs> and so instead of running away and saying, oh, that's not going to work in the story, um, I rewrote the story to make the uh, married, uh, you know, the wife pregnant. And I'm really glad I did, you know, because she, she is, Sarah's due literally any day now, in the next week or something. So she was eight, eight months pregnant acting in the film, which is really scary, but we went for it and it worked out. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm good, good to on you for, you know, agreeing to do that. And uh, I'm sure that she appreciated it too, right? Yeah, she, she really does. I mean, I, when I told her I was changing it, she got very excited. I met up with her one extra time and, um, she could kind of give me some thoughts about the character that, and, and I just, I took them, you know, it's, like I said, if you hear a great thought, just take it. And if you hear a bad thought, you just kind of act, act like it's good and then you won't run away. <laughs> but, but, um, I took her, her thoughts about her, the character, you know, quoting the Bible a lot and stuff. And I, I thought that was funny and I, I threw that in the, in the film and, and it's there and I love it. So, yeah. So, so you have this thing on Kickstarter now, how, how's that going for you and what are you raising the money for? Um, so the Kickstarter is we. I'm glad I brought up the Sarah thing already because she um, she's pregnant and and we just thought we have to you know make this film as soon as possible because I I think she's great. We have a connection. She has a connection to the story and all that stuff. But you know we have we have no time. And if we wait for Kickstarter, that's a month, and then it takes two weeks to get the funds. Um, there's a hold period, 14 days, and then there's another seven days for it to get deposited into your account. So that's basically seven weeks of just waiting for money to come in, right. assuming that it's successful. Right. Um, so we just thought, oh, God, we've we got to make this film now. And so I, I took out massive loans, and I just thought, we just got to make this, and we'll, you know, we'll launch the Kickstarter after, and we'll, we'll show the footage and, and just go for it. And so we did that. The film got shot, and then I launched the Kickstarter um, I think about a week ago, um, and it's it's going slow. So um, if, if anyone's out there listening, please you know donate a dollar <laughs> or anything. Um, but but yeah, it's going it's going kind of slow. But you know that's the we're gonna try to work really hard and and get get it on some good websites and all that kind of stuff, and we'll see what we can do. Well, I mean, you've still got three weeks left, right? So three three, three weeks. Yeah, some people could launch it uh, with a, with seven days and they could pull it off. So it's 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 fine, I and mean, we'll do our best to pull it off. But, you know, it just happens to be a very ambitious, um, you know, uh, price point for a short film. But, you know, I, I, if anyone out there is want to be executive producer, you know, uh, I'm making this into a feature so they could definitely have their hands on the next version or even a, 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 a you know, TV show and that could last for years. So just depending on it, um, you know, I hope anyone out there is interested. That'd be great. 
Well, uh, you know, what can I tell you, uh, John? It's been great talking with you. Uh, you know, I was certainly impressed with the material that I saw on uh, on your Kickstarter page. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun following your career, and I always tell people that uh, you know, one of the joys of this podcast is getting in touch with people like yourself that are at the beginning of their careers because I never know where you guys are going to end up. And <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's a high for me whenever you guys come back and you, you tell me that you know what I've, I've gotten to to this level and and I, I got to watch it from the beginning. I, I you know, I, I love it. So you're more than welcome to come back on here anytime you like. All right. All right. I'll, I'll see you next week. All right. Hey. <laughs> got time. All right. But uh, all right. You know, if you want to come on towards the end of your Kickstarter campaign, we'll see if we can give you another boost. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, well uh, that sounds fun. So uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, the false mirror or follow you on Twitter or to get in you know, touch with your read. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll mention a couple of your other films in passing here: Happy Medium, uh, Row, and The Circle Game. Where's where's three short films by uh, by Johnny Coffee that uh, we didn't get to, but maybe we can talk about those in another time. Where can people go, Johnny, to learn more about what you're doing? And and specifically, uh, let's get in a plug for the Kickstarter campaign. Sure. I mean, the if you want to just check out my films, uh, you know, JohnnyCoffee.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y, C-O-F-F-E-E-N. Dot com uh, that will just have my films there in a bio about me and then um, the Kickstarter uh, if you just go to Kickstarter type the false mirror in the search it should pop up um, and Instagram is kind of my jam I use that the most um, if you want to follow me personally and watch pictures of my you can see pictures of my cat all the time all that kind of stuff you can go to my Instagram um, the false mirror Instagram Facebook both of those things work yeah, just go ahead and, and feel free to write me a message um, if you want. Uh, but yeah, that's basically where you can learn more about me. Well, uh, you know, again, great show. Uh, you know, big thank you to uh, Amy Dresner, who was on in the first half, and Johnny uh, Coffeen uh, in the second. Uh, also, a tip of the hat to two great friends who helped me out today. Uh, Stuart Michelson, Tracy McCormick. Uh, again, Tracy is with uh, LightfinderPR.com. I'll get in another uh, quote, plug for her. Uh, and you can look up Stuart Michelson at Join the Nation. Uh, again, he has a, a blog and a podcast and a whole other bit. So, uh, Johnny, again, great shot and best of luck with the campaign. And anything I can do to, uh, to help, then you let me know, all right? All right, man. Thank you. I'll see you next week. All right. <laughs> okay, well, we'll be in touch for sure. I'll send you a right. the recording, all right? Uh, so right, that's going to do it for me this week. Uh, again, on behalf of my guest Johnny Coffeen and Amy Dresner, you've been listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. Uh, I'm going to be back next week with Jason McIntyre, an old friend of ours, a novelist uh, who's going to be on talking about a bunch of his new work. And until then, uh, I'm going to call up my closer here, and I am going to say cut, print, wrap, and I That was another edition of The Cutting Room Floor with your host, Casey Ryan. Follow Casey on Twitter at Cutting Room MRB and on Facebook, The Cutting Room Floor.